0: Hello, friends. Hit Factory here. Aaron, solo, on this side of the mic, Jason Derulo style. Uh, But fear not, I am joined today by a wonderful, wonderful guest. He's a New York-based musician. He's America's sweetheart. You know him. You love him. Nick Miller is on the show. Nick, welcome to Hit Factory.
1: Hey, thanks for having me on, Aaron. I'm so excited.
0: Well, we're thrilled to have you. We, I still say we even when it's just me solo on the show. (laughs) Um, It's the Royal We. It's Hit Factory as an entity. I am a a film Twitter small entity. I don't know if you saw that, Nick, but um, (laughs) that is my official designation now, courtesy of some thoughtful Redditors. Uh, (laughs) But today we're going to be talking about Tom Hanks as director and screenwriter and his film about the meteoric rise and fall of a fictional eerie Pennsylvania band called The Wonders, who climbed the charts in the era of peak Beatlemania, with their infectious pop hit, That Thing You Do. The film itself is as breezy and charming as the eponymous tune. It's a 108-minute skate through nostalgic sights and sounds of the era, and it offers an effervescent, if cursory, glance at America in the 1960s. But in 2007, the film was re-released on DVD with an extended cut from Hanks that contains nearly 40 additional minutes of footage that enhances some character dynamics, fills in some noteworthy jumps in logic and continuity, and from my perspective, gives life to some wonderful meandering moments of cinema that recall some of the great surveyors of vintage Americana, like Jonathan Demme, who serves as producer on this film, Robert Altman, uh, or even Paul Thomas Anderson.
1: We bow. In unison,
2: and we're off the stage before the applause. Guys out, right? You have your pick? Right here. Alright. Keep these with you. Put them on, put them on, put them on. There you go. You guys look great in red. Have I told you that yet? Let's give a big welcome to the latest edition to the That's big go go go, of the stars. go, 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 Doing that thing they do. it's They're oh.
1: For God's
0: sake, the and so that extended cut of the film is going to be our focus for today's conversation, though we will be talking quite a bit about the distinctions between it and the theatrical version, which more people are familiar with. Uh, so Nick, I will be honest, I didn't even know that the extended cut of this film existed until about a year ago. I've seen the theatrical cut Any number of times, I think I came to it for the first time around like maybe 2003, 2004 with some pals at a sleepover the way a lot of people uh, of our generation did. But I'm I'm curious about your history with it and when you maybe first saw that thing you do and when you came to the extended cut and, and how it changed your perspective on the film.
1: I think, oh man, I'm trying to think of how old I would have been when I first saw this. It was playing probably on HBO or something like that. You know, something where over the course of a couple months, it would be replaying a lot. Uh, and I watched it a lot. I think I showed it to a couple friends. friends, <laughs> uh, you know, like I was very, very into it. It was kind of before I was, I don't know, overtaken by a love of music, but it was it still interested me like it was fun. It was light. Uh, it had a good song. What more could you want if you're like a kid? That's ideal. So I would watch it a lot. And then there was a long time where I didn't see it. But in my mind, it was this thing that I remembered loving. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of a thing where I was like, was it good because I was a kid or was it good because it was good? Yeah. Um, and I'm from Western Pennsylvania, also like a 90 minute drive from Erie. So there was also a part of me that was like, do I like it? Because it's in the Rust Belt where I'm from, like, is that why I like it? And so I was probably 2015, I think I was at like a used video store and I saw a DVD copy for like $3, maybe. And it said something about an extended cut. And I was like, Mm -hmm. well, I got to see what this is all about. (laughs) Uh, And then I saw how much longer the extended cut was. And I was like excited by that because it was like a substantial amount it wasn't like two deleted scenes this was like had the potential to be a completely different movie uh so when i got the copy i watched it again and i just fell in love with it all over again immediately and i was like all right well you know 12 year old nick had pretty good taste after all this this holds up uh <laughs> and then i watched the director's cut and i was like okay now this is like even better because i think the theatrical cut Is very good and -hmm. it's a lot of fun and it is like light, breezy entertainment. I can also understand why people think it's kind of slight and maybe, you know, clearly a directorial debut from somebody not known as a director. But then you watch the full one and I kind of think all those criticisms go away a little bit. I mean, in my mind, at least I think it kind of makes up for all of the shortcomings, maybe of the like theatrical cut.
0: We were talking a little bit off mic before about the kind of the inception of this film. We should mention that, uh, you know, Hanks is working on this movie with Demi after uh, Demi directs him to his first Oscar win. Yeah. Uh, for Philadelphia in 1993. Uh, he wins back-to-back years consecutively for Philadelphia and then for Forrest Gump. Yep. Um, and then Demi was really there kind of from the beginning, from the inception of this film. Um, his name, I, I don't think it's talked about all that much in terms of that thing you do, but this really is the era where he starts to adopt kind of the ethos of his mentor, Roger Corman, and starts trying to produce uh, a lot of movies for kind of Young Gun, some up-and-coming filmmakers. Yeah. Um, He he does George Armitage's Miami Blues in 1990, uh, which is a fucking romp. We have not talked about it on the show. Oh,
1: God. I watched that for the first time a couple months ago. That is insane. I did not believe people saying how crazy it was in like a good way. Mm
0: -hmm. And,
1: oh, my God, what a a time.
0: It's an incredible movie. Probably my favorite Alec Baldwin performance uh, of all time in it. And Fr- the great Fred Ward just yes. killing it in there. Uh, it, it's it's a terrific movie. But you know, alongside that, he also does Carl uh, Franklin's Devil in a Blue Dress, another mm. really noteworthy one during this yep. era. Great, great movie with Incredible. Denzel. Uh, and then, of course, this film. And... We were, uh, as I said, mentioning kind of a, an oral history, a really good oral history that The Ringer uh, put out for the 25th anniversary back in 2021, um, written, kind of compiled by Jake Kring uh, Schreifel, the the author there. And uh, it mentions that Demi was with Hanks kind of in the early script reads saying, you know, oh, you need to cut, uh, you know, X number of pages. You need to cut X number of scenes and and locations. We need to pare this thing down. Well, even after that, we get this two hour and 30 minute cut of the movie that feels very meandering, very sprawling. And you realize that there are moments here that probably had even more of that kind of like fill in a few more of those kind of like things that bridge the gaps and provided a little bit more clarity to the characters here. You're, you're talking about like, what is essentially probably like a three hour movie on the page when everything is all said and done. Um, and even without it, like you said, you know, it, it, still just it's so much more complex it adds so much color to a lot of the characters um there are entire like plot threads here that don't exist in the theatrical version um we see charlie's theron for more than like two minutes in this yeah. version but i i do agree with you that i think that it it adds substantial kind of like potency to the proceedings and it just gets a chance to like live in that setting Mm -hmm. and in that environment you know the other one is is a a straightforward kind of quick shot of like pop nostalgia but the extended version really is like uh just one of those great kind of sprawling epics of an era that just like lets you kind of live in the environment
1: yeah it's like yeah it went from you know just a fun popcorn flick which obviously it's not said derogatory like i mean Everyone loves that. There's nothing wrong Mm -hmm. with that. But you watch the extended version and you go, oh, they really like he thought about this a lot. This was a real like love letter to this era, not just a portrait, like a snapshot of it, but kind of, I don't know, getting you inside the heads of that. It's also there's something to be said about seeing something like that set in like a pre-Vietnam Mm -hmm. Uh, sixties, you know, like, you know, the Beatles, that's like the version of long hair at the time, you know, there's not like hippies. (laughs) It's, and it's just interesting because I don't think you ever get to see that, which is, you know, there's reasons, I guess, like on paper, it's not as interesting maybe, but Mm -hmm. you get to kind of live in this world of like, you know, what was that idyllic sixties kind of before? Kennedy assassination. What does that look like reflecting on it? Because it, I feel like everyone skips over that. It always has to be after. I mean, he enlists the bass player enlists in the Marines. He's not drafted into the Marines. <laughs> like it's right. It's just a weird kind of bygone era that we don't get to hear about as much. And it's fun to spend. I don't know, what is it, two hours, two and a half hours mm-hmm. in there and just with these people?
0: Yeah, you know we've talked before about Hanks on the show. Granted, just as actor, um, and specifically in Apollo thirteen, which mm-hmm. is a, another big hit from uh, a couple of years just before this, and how his project alongside some of the you know kind of uh, accomplished journeymen of the era in the '90s, and also you know the greats like Spielberg later on in the in the decade with Saving Private Ryan, his project is really about reflecting on and sort of a a more kind of refined nostalgia for mm-hmm. a bygone era of, like, the greatest generation. Yeah. And I th- I think we see in a lot of his works that, like, what he's infatuated with is a sense of kind of American purpose that existed prior to Vietnam, that, like, mm-hmm. Vietnam is sort of the the kind of, like, apex point of that, like, conflict and that sort of uh, cynical view on yeah. America broadly.
1: Yeah. And I... I mean that kind of goes hand in hand with. I feel, in that oral history, they mention an interesting quote from. I wish I could remember the actor's name. I never remember this guy's name, but the guy who's <laughs> the manager, you know, the the first manager.
0: Oh yes, yes. Um, it's, he was in uh, Apollo
1: 13. He was in. He was in it with him.
0: Right, uh, Chris Ellis is the name of the actor. Chris
1: Ellis, yeah. I was gonna say Phil Horace, but that was the character. And I, <laughs>
0: <laughs> but, we can call him by the character name. They're they're, <laughs> yeah. they're real people, as far as yeah. we're concerned.
1: But he says in that oral history because he wanted to play, he wanted to play the manager kind of tougher. And Hanks was like, "There aren't bad guys in my movie," which is such mm-hmm. an interesting take on it. And I think in some ways, kind of relates to what you were saying a little bit of like reminiscent of these other directors where maybe they have movies. This is not true as a blanket statement, but I'm thinking you mentioned Altman. I'm thinking of like California split is like Mm -hmm. this kind of hangout movie. It tells a full story, but there's also not, I mean, they get mugged twice, but there's not like a bad guy in the movie. There's not like a villain. They're their own worst enemies in it, which is kind of true for the wonders also is like,
2: Mm
1: -hmm. I mean, you know, they have Jimmy. He's their own worst enemy. He's, gonna you know he's gonna shoot the success right in the foot so I, it just makes me think of that how it does feel like you just get to hang out with these guys for a couple hours and sort of follow on their journey see what it was like for a couple months without it being like there's not an evil record produced like even <laughs> right. even saw silas is not like an evil man he's just a the head of Playtone records and doesn't know who they are. Like that's his worst sin is not knowing (laughs) who the people on his label are.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know, that perspective I feel like is one that other, you know, directors may carry, you know, this idea of like, Oh, there's no bad guys in my movie. And I think when they say it, maybe what they mean is like every character uh, we try to reflect their interiority enough so that you understand their, their purpose and kind of drive behind them. Yes but with Hanks it it's it's literalized right like it's like no we're going to make everyone in the movie like a a decent person uh despite their flaws and and you're going to sympathize with them and he really does you know just kind of go for that across the board even with the jimmies when they're at their lowest yeah. moments even with uh you know Mr. White his his record producer character who could on paper be you know like pretty ruthless pretty conniving but is uh, really, just like a pragmatist who has a couple moments of of generosity and goodness in him, yes. especially with Liv Tyler's character.
1: Yeah, I mean, I do like that also about Mr. White. Is like he could be ruthless, but you the way it's portrayed on film, and either it goes to Hanks's writing or his acting. All of it is just very you like you watch it and go, "Oh yeah, okay, he's right." Like he's and he he's clearly been around the block a few times. Like he's a successful manager. He's not like some like crooked, you know, out to swindle people out of money. It's very much <laughs> like he's just yeah, if this band doesn't work out, there's going to be another one. Like it's yeah. going to happen over and over again. Um and I like you want to hate him a little bit. Yeah. But there's nothing actually to hate. He's just like he's the suit. So you want to hate him.
0: He's very matter-of-fact in the film. I mean, yeah. even at the end when everything collapses, it's done with kind of like a warmness where he's like, "Look, you guys are a one-hit wonder. You made one great tune. You collapsed under the pressure. It happens. The yeah. story is old as time in this industry. Like, like a lot yeah. of other bands have done. That. And he's like almost like trying to reassure guy in the moment. Like, yeah, you're not the first person to ever experience this. Like, it, it's it's something that a lot of people go through. Uh, so just you know, dialing back a little bit and talking about the background of this film so this is an idea that Tom Hanks has for I would say the better part of a decade probably yeah maybe longer I mean even you know that that oral history from the ringer kind of mentions that he's first inspired by uh the story of Jimmy Nichol the drummer yeah. who took over for Ringo for a couple of dates in Australia during their their 1964 right. world tour um and just kind of thinking about the idea of like what must it be like for this artist for this musician, to be for a brief moment in the limelight of a band as big as the Beatles. And then he coupled that, of course, with his knowledge of the era, his love for a lot of one hit wonders of, you know, the 1960s during this kind of uh, boom of popular music and starts just drafting a little bit of this thing here and there Mm -hmm. over the course of the first part of the 90s. I think he, he mentions that when he's on Philadelphia, and doing the kind of award circuit for it. Mm-hmm. He's writing a little bit of that thing you do. Then he goes straight into making Forrest Gump <laughs> yeah. and he starts writing that thing you do. And then he's on the award circuit again for Forrest Gump and keeps yeah. writing a little bit of this. Um, so he's he's just putting little pieces of it together and it's clear on, on the page and like when you watch it that there is a lot of just like, just very kind of niche knowledge of the mm-hmm. era that comes out and plays and not, you know, cause you can see when people do like these kind of big stroke sort of references <laughs> yeah. and his are very, very refined.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's done with such care and such reverence and not in like a, like a blind reverence kind of way, but just like he has so much respect for not just that time period, but clearly pop music of that time period in general. I mean, cause I'm sure we'll get into the songs, but like outside of the title song, All of those songs are pretty good, like. Yeah. And that takes something for him to be like, we can't only have the rock and roll song be good, like the fake Burt Bacharach torch singer also has to have a good (laughs) song, you know, the fake girl group also has to have a good song. And there's just so much there. I mean, you're right. Other people do it in broad strokes. I watched like ten minutes maybe 15 minutes of a movie a couple weeks ago Mm -hmm. that was so bad. I had to turn it off. (laughs) I was like, how can a movie about like a teenage garage band be bad? And it was it was it was so horrible. I don't I don't know. I'm not going to shit on it on the air because maybe people (laughs) like it. But like, it's not good. I'll just say. You know. David Chase. You you should have stuck to TV.
0: (laughs) There we go. That's all we need to say about it, right? And in that sense,
1: I think Hanks should kind of be commended a little bit for trying to set a story with some kind of tension in a time that I think the general public's mind maybe doesn't have tension in it. Which is absurd. Obviously it Mm -hmm. did. But like, I enjoy a rare movie about the 60s that is not about Vietnam it's so Mm -hmm. you're not gonna have to worry about a fortunate son needle drop not only because (laughs) they wrote all original songs for this movie but because we just weren't gonna get to that point
0: I completely agree and you know like you said obviously uh there there is tension in this era you know we're we're approaching kind of the the apex of the uh, civil rights movement in America there are lots of socio-political tensions like broiling just under the surface but There is, like I said, with with Hank's kind of this this nostalgic bent, this kind of hue that that sort of sands down the edges a little bit. And I think what the extended cut of this film does so well is reveals a few more of those edges still intact rather than like really smoothing it down the way Mm -hmm. that that theatrical version does.
1: Yeah, I would agree with that. I yeah.
0: So let's talk about a couple of other key players here in the film as well, just as some background. Uh, We've already mentioned, you know, Tom Hanks, writer here, Jonathan Demme, producing this. Uh, Hanks is now his, like, protege. He believes in him from the outset that he's a filmmaker. Uh, Brings in a gentleman named Gary Getzman, who Mm -hmm. becomes sort of another producer on this and and works really hand-in-hand with uh, Tom on the day-to-day. But we've also got a couple of other... I think essential players here that really bring this thing to life one of them is colleen atwood who is an academy award-winning costume designer Mm -hmm. uh, who really puts the finishing touches on all of the kind of like nostalgic imagery and iconography in here everybody feels pitch perfect the costuming is is gorgeous and and not just you know like the matching suits but everything they're wearing beforehand uh all the dresses that you know like the chanterelles wear and Mm -hmm. and diane dane and everything it it all looks beautiful and period appropriate you've also got the great tak fujimoto behind the camera who in my mind is and i'm not gonna say he's undersung he was certainly heralded in his time Mm -hmm. he uh made a lot of great films I, i think had had plenty of awards recognition but he is not as big a household name as some of your say, like Robert Elswitz or uh, your Roger Deakins or something like that. And in my mind, he deserves to be. He is yeah. uh, maybe I-, I think you know, like film for film, my favorite cinematographer.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's such a um, I don't even know how to describe. It's because there's not there's not some like trademark glow or something to this movie or any. It like it looks. Yeah. I think some of my favorite shots in the extended cut happen in like dressing rooms Mm -hmm. where the camera is clearly handheld and you can kind of see it moving a little bit. And it's not trying Mm -hmm. to give a documentary feel uh, because, you know, that would be like kind of hacky if it was trying to go for that. Yeah. But just because of the way it's moving, it helps with the hang out sort of vibe. It helps with that sort of I'm going to keep going back to the point that people are going to get mad that we're throwing the name around, but it helps with the Altman <laughs> kind of feel of it of like yes. you are just spending time with these people. It doesn't And I think you could criticize the movie maybe the theatrical cut more so for maybe not having like interesting shots. A lot of them are very clearly like full coverage shots. Sure. Uh and I don't really think that's a problem inherently. It is an ensemble cast, but like, I think it works better in the director's cut, like to see everybody interacting with each other. And that, you just, I think if you go with somebody else, you're not gonna get some of those shots. Like, I'm sure, I'm sure they were pretty 50-50 on the input there on how it was gonna look, you know. And I just, at a, there's something very striking about the movie without having like a pop to it. It's just, it shows you for what it, it shows it for what it is.
0: Yeah. You know, talk. I think is somebody who he's so versatile. Like I think of some of the, the shots in something like a silence of the lambs, you know, where Mm -hmm. you've got uh, an officer like flayed up like, and, and, you know, hanging from like the bars of a a prison cell that feels terrifying and evocative and very kind of Gothic. Um, But then you get that kind of like warm, you know, you know, fountain soda and, and malt kind of look of this movie. Yeah. And you just realize that he's he's so good at evoking a, a sense of place and a, a sort of tone with his visual imagery that uh, I think really gets taken for granted. When you don't have somebody who is, and this is going to feel diminutive and, and maybe, you know, a little bit insulting, but I, I apologize. But I think of, you know, uh, someone like a deacons. Mm-hmm. Who does some really great unfussy work with like the Coen Brothers, uh, or you know, doing something with like David Mamet on Homicide, and then he does stuff that feels a little bit more like it's designed for like a four-panel Twitter post or a, a background on your laptop, like a like a Blade Runner twenty forty nine mm-hmm. or something. Yeah, and there's versatility there, but I always appreciate the people who can do a lot and make something really come to life and pop and sing and feel creative uh, when they're not going for those like money shots you know yes
1: i do think online i mean not to bring up any discourse that happened online (laughs) please do i mean when i like recently i feel like people are talking about sydney lumet and like yeah and it was it was like a thing i don't know have you seen like you kind of want to shake those people like have you seen these movies like they're good what does it matter if it's the same as like if he doesn't have a style, quote unquote, like a mm-hmm. Scorsese or something like I I do think we're kind of at a point where maybe those people don't get enough recognition not the right word. Even respect isn't the right word, but something about it, it gets like undervalued somewhat. I think people want to be so distinct because there's not like a I don't know, there's not like a studio system like there was, I guess. Maybe that's part of it. Uh, yeah. And maybe that's for the best, but also like, <laughs> it's kind of nice that there are these people on all all positions behind the camera who like can adapt to whatever they're working on, which is a roundabout way of saying yes, I agree with what you said. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, thank you, Nick Miller, for agreeing. But I mean, you're very right. There's there's a little bit less of an immediacy to the images here, and I don't mean that in the sense that they're like more Byzantine. I actually mean that they are just more kind of normal they're unfussy yeah. they don't call attention to themselves they look beautiful um and are well composed but in a way that you're kind of used to that don't call immediate attention to them and i think that there's uh, a lot of a lot of merit in that and i think that uh Tak fujimoto is like one of the best uh to ever do that in in some of his films uh but we're now like we've been talking about this for a minute now and I realize that we haven't talked about who is perhaps like the most essential player in the film aside from, you know, Tom Hanks, aside from the cast here, one man responsible uh for so much of this film and its success who is Adam Schlesinger. I- excuse me, I I don't know if it's a J or a G here. I don't know either. Um, <laughs> but songwriter probably best known for uh being uh involved in Fountains of Wayne and mm-hmm. writing the the essential aughts hit Stacy's Mom. Yeah. As well as a couple other bangers. I love that that album. Um yeah. really, really infectious stuff. But Adam Schlesinger is responsible for writing that thing you do. Mm-hmm. And it is a song that is so good that evokes the the spirit of the era, sounds so authentic that the first time I watched this movie, I was convinced that it was a biopic that it was yeah. a, a real story about a real band and i remember at the end thinking wait is th- is this where the term one hit wonder comes
2: from is <laughs> yeah. is this
0: like the origin of, like is that why this story is is a, a movie i only later did i realize oh that's the symmetry of hanks as a screenwriter making up yeah. this kind of like thing <laughs> story but but the authenticity of it i think is something that people come back to all the time and just how brilliantly infectious mm-hmm. that tune that thing you do is all the music really but you hear that thing you do like 15 times over the course of the movie yeah. and it doesn't ever really get tiresome it it, it doesn't uh, you know start to get annoying ever and I think it's so vital that that's the case
1: yeah I remember I think I counted I think it's like 15 or 16 times it plays during the extended cut I tried counting yeah. it once because I was like <laughs> it plays a lot more yeah and it already plays a lot in the shorter version. Um, but I yeah I, you never get tired of it. There's just something about it. I I've heard people say something about it is too 90s. It's hmm. not which I think I sort of understand I think maybe melodically. I also think maybe it's I think Mike Viola's the singer. maybe it's his yeah. singing style is very of its time in a way. Um, but I don't think that even takes away from it at all. Like, I think it I still think it works. I still think it sounds like a 60s song or like as close as you're going to get. If you told somebody in 1995, like, hey, we need a fake 60s song <laughs> without getting somebody who was alive, then making music that is as good as you're going to get. And that's not like a shortcoming that you they nailed it. It's great. Like, that song gets stuck in my head frequently. Just like, even if I haven't seen the movie recently, that song's in my head. My old band we used to play it all the time. Like it was,
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: I, in there's videos of In Sync covering it live, where they all got on instruments to play it. Like it's insane that it was a big hit after the movie came out. But it's that just speaks to how good it was. Like the movie doesn't work if that song is bad. It all of this stuff we've talked about that is great. The fun aspect of it doesn't work if the song is like well this sucks this is one of the worst things i've ever heard
0: <laughs> yeah you know there's this kind of unspoken rule about movies that have music in them where it's like if you spend an entire film building up like the brilliance of a performance or mm-hmm. of a, a piece of music or of like a a movie or something You're usually better off just never showing it and just referencing (laughs) it and like showing, you know, how much it affected other people because it's always going to come up short. People talk about uh, Mr. Holland's Opus, (laughs) where he's, you know, writing this like you know grand like ensemble piece for his entire life and finally realizes his dream of having a, a band perform it. And it's dog shit. <laughs> it's just like <laughs> it's just it's just not very good, you know, which you know adds maybe like a, a sly kind of like, you know, sinister undertone to all of it if you're watching it from a meta perspective. But I think the movie yeah. actually believes that it is quite moving. Right. Uh, and, and in this case, like you don't you don't fall into that that problem. You hear a tune, and you're right, like it does have a little bit of like kind of a nineties edge to it. Like it feels like a facsimile, but I yeah. think like you said, like it, it is something that is actually a feature of it and mm-hmm. doesn't really uh, deter your enjoyment. I think a lot of this yeah. movie does that. Like even, you know, Tom Everett Scott for uh, however good he is and however good he was able to get on a set of drums and, you know, like four weeks of practicing, you yeah. know, uh, morning to, to night. You see his, his routine, you see his like fills, things like that. And it's like this guy would not like jive with with like a, a a real good like famous jazz player. He's just he's just yeah. not good enough to do that. You know? <laughs> it's it's very kind of basic. It's still, you know, pretty metered, pretty like, you know, yeah. simple, uh like kind of jazz drumming, almost like like uh smooth jazz almost. Yeah. Um but but it works for the purposes of the film and all of it feels uh authentic enough that in the moment you believe it, like you said, yeah. you know, the the uh, you know, like the supreme style, like band that's there, the Chanterelles mm-hmm. and and the Diane Danes, and you've got like the the Bobby Darren knockoff too, who's here, yep. whose song also sounds pretty authentic. Yeah, also sounds a little bit like the Peter Gunn yes. uh, tune. If you notice, yes. it
1: sounds so much like it to the point I think like the first time that I watched it after I bought this DVD, because in the extended it plays real early when he's yeah. driving. And right. I remember hearing that and being like, is that the Peter Gunn theme? And then later <laughs> being like, oh, that's the song from the soundtrack. Like, okay, that,
0: yeah,
1: it is very similar, but it works. All of it works. I mean, there's also something I think to what you were saying about guys drumming. And I think it's the case with the whole band. They do look believably like they're playing the instruments,
0: mm-hmm. yeah.
1: uh, which is a big part of like any of that and I remember in that oral history there, I remember like there was Tom Hanks telling them like, you don't have to know this perfectly. We will cut away if it doesn't look like what's (laughs) happening on screen. Right. But like you should be okay at this. Uh, and I mean, there is something just watching it now, Tom Everett Scott. I don't know. I really am like my dad's a drummer. And so I've like Mm -hmm. always been very into drummers, uh, in general and like watching them, there is something to watching him where it's like he kind of he's clearly the person here who learned how to play their instrument the best, like Mm -hmm. uh, even, you know, Ethan Embry played bass already, but like played in punk bands. So it's not really the same Steve Zahn, I think, played guitar, maybe. Mm -hmm. But it was clear that like Tom Everett Scott went the hardest in their little boot camp. And. There is something very satisfying to being like, oh, he's kind of leaning into this exactly as much as somebody should. Like, it looks like he's playing every single note that's happening, which is not the case with all of the other guys or in most movies with musicians. So it's like, I don't know. The material is like the perfect marriage with the actors who were picked to portray the band because it was just like something about them. Works for as much as I love that whole two and a half hour cut. You could show me just the scenes of them hanging out with instruments as a band, and I'd be like, This was a great movie. It's 10 minutes long, but it's a great movie.
0: <laughs> no, those scenes are so rewarding, and I, you know, I think get into some of the stuff uh, that is so special about the extended version of this. Uh, you mentioned already that we're introduced to that. Uh, that Freddie Fredrickson song, "Mr. Downtown," early on when guy is driving away from uh the appliance store that his dad yeah. owns. We have a extended sequence where we're actually introduced to his relationship with Charlize Theron, and mm-hmm. we find out that it's sort of tentatively their year anniversary. They've been kind of on again, off again for a little while. And uh, the first hint here too, that the movie in the extended version is a little bit more PG-13 than PG, a little bit more sexually suggestive in moments. Yeah. Um, But I I think it adds a little bit. um, We'll we'll talk a little bit about Charlize in a minute, but those, those early scenes with the band that you're talking about are, I think to me, even more fun more rewarding and you're right like they get into that argument and it's it's not like you said like it's not it's not a fracturing like you know we're gonna go step outside or you know walk our separate ways and cool off it it does feel authentic where it's just like a a group that is feeling tension around a performance and trying to Mm -hmm. work some stuff out and try to get something right when you know they're down on the wire and you know i played in bands before and it's felt like that you know you get into kind of like shouting matches with somebody for a moment and the rest of the band tries to cool you down a little bit and uh, you know, someone's playing too fast or someone's playing the wrong chord. And and it is. It's just fun seeing them hang out and play around in those garage settings. Um, Which yeah, just, Also, just if I can, cool.
1: if I can cut in, we all know this, but it should be said. Guy was 100% right. The song needed to be faster. It did yes. not. Jimmy <laughs> Jimmy is his own worst enemy here. He can't have that be a ballad. And then be like, well, also, I have all my only dreams. It's another ballad. These are both going to be our big hits. You just It doesn't <laughs> work this way. If you want no. this to be A side and B side, one of them's got to be fast. And Guy, he did the right thing. You cannot get mad at him for that. Uh, he's, he's the hero of the story for a reason. Because he sped up the song and made it good. Imagine if you had to hear that song 15 times when it was slower You'd be like, yeah, this is all right, but like, <laughs> I could have heard this once and been all right with it.
0: Yeah, yeah. You need the juice there, and I think you know you can maybe speak to this uh, a, a little bit, Nick, uh, as a musician. But there is something really magical in this movie at that moment, and then when Guy goes into the faster version at the talent show, just kind of like <laughs> this, you know, this uh, this rug pull on the on the yeah. band that they kind of have to lean into where. It portrays so well something that I love about being around musicians and writing music and hearing different, like, iterations of songs. It's why I like kind of, like, you know, deluxe versions. It's why the Beatles, like, you know, re-release stuff with, like, a thousand new tracks every so often, you know. Um, Because you see how the version that you fall in love with gets there. And you hear that, like, every song is, like, something that is, like, kind of like a living, breathing organism. And that, like, it takes... Mm-hmm. a special little like injection of something for it to become the kind of like earworm or the big hit that you know yeah and if you remove it and and pull it back you realize oh this song is totally different this song doesn't hit the same maybe it's just as good maybe it's in a, a different you know kind of compelling yeah. version but i think it just like has a really fascinating grasp on that idea of like song structure and songwriting and how Uh, like one decisive change can really pull something in a new direction.
1: Yeah, totally. I mean, it makes me think of a little bit when Springsteen put out the, the river box set, Mm -hmm. there are so many songs that from the outtakes that feature the line, which I think ended up in state trooper on Nebraska, Mm
2: -hmm. but
1: about like Jersey looking like a lunar landscape Or like something like a lot of lines from State Trooper are in these like upbeat pop rock and roll songs on the river outtakes. And it all works in there. But it is fascinating to see like, oh, he got hung up on this side, like this imagery, something about this. He was really trying to find somewhere to fit that in Um, more to that vein. I really want to hear the other versions of that thing you do. I want to oh hear my God when I read that oral history two years ago and they said squeeze wrote one. Yeah. I think they, they might, might be giants. giants. Marshall Crenshaw <laughs> wrote one. I yep. have to hear what the Marshall Crenshaw that thing you do is I want to hear every version. I think what they say there were like 300 versions of it that people turned in. I want to. Yeah, yeah, I want to hear every version like I that sounds like an exaggeration, but I want to block off a whole day and listen to every version of that. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, they they mention in that oral history that at one point in time they thought about and teased the idea that they would release a soundtrack that was just all the different versions that were <laughs> yeah. submitted to them. And I know that we get, you know, like a, a really great that thing you do soundtrack. In fact, I, I think, you know, Mondo has been teasing for a little while a vinyl reissue of yeah. the, the, that thing you do soundtrack, um, I think as far back as like 2021 it's finally coming to fruition. Like as we were both prepping for this podcast, there was like a, yeah. a tweet about it yesterday and I was like, okay, perfect timing. Like, yeah, it's on the way. Um, but I would absolutely love to hear those like Crenshaw and, and squeeze versions and just any number of, of versions of the song.
1: Yeah. And I mean, there's also on the soundtrack, there is another, that thing you do that Adam Schlesinger wrote and mm-hmm. it is good. It's not the right song to be the title song at all it is not the right vibe it is it's too much like the birds i feel like that other one yeah which is too far down the line in the 60s to make (laughs) sense for the movie sure but like it's good and so i sort of want to hear because i bet he had other versions of more than those two like i would love to hear his own evolution of that song
0: Yeah, I think, you know, it's either in the oral history or in another interview with Mike Viola and Schlesinger where Adam mentions that he wrote, I think, three different versions of the track and kind Mm -hmm. of played them for friends. And they all kept coming back to the same one, which was the one that inevitably was submitted and became the tune. Uh, But that also, you know, Mike Viola uh, said that, you know, they were playing around with it a little bit and he was listening to an early iteration of it that was like, oh, you know, this is a a pretty standard, you know, like one, four, five chord progression. But the Beatles do this thing sometimes where they go into yeah. this like minor chord here. So like they decide to throw it in right in that mm-hmm. moment during the the chorus, you know, that uh tearing my heart in two yeah. part where you, you hit that kind of like good chord right there and and it feels really warm, uh, despite being, you know, in, in a minor uh for a moment. But uh, yeah, I I love just the the conception of it. I want to hear all the versions of this that came through. I want to hear how the music got made. I think it's I think it would be a brilliant uh thing for us to hear. So if anyone has these recordings and you're listening to the show, please get them to us. It would be phenomenal to hear.
1: Yeah, if Marshall Crenshaw, if you're listening to this, if you can <laughs> DM me on Twitter or anything, we can look. I think between the two of us. We could probably exploit connections to some of these people to get the recordings. I'm almost certain they probably I think you're the, right, the squeeze recording probably doesn't exist. <laughs> you give me a month, though, and I bet I could find it. I bet I know all the right people to get there. It might take like 10 steps, but I feel like we could maybe get Glenn Tilbrook on the phone. Can you sing us 10 <laughs> seconds? If you remember 10 seconds of it, just hum, it. Just it, hum it for yeah.
0: us. That's yeah, all we just, really need. I
1: don't even need to hear the guitar. Hum the melody. How did it go when you came up with it? Don't think of the one <laughs> from the movie, or else you're going to start humming that. Do yours.
2: Every day, just doing that thing. Here's the ending, and it goes something like this right here. So it's verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, solo, verse, chorus, then out. Sweet. Is that the tempo? Think he can handle it? He can. Or my name is Constantine de Montoya of Flanders. Chad stayed on the hi hat for most of it. Did he now?
1: You guys, Chad's arm is so scary. I don't think I've ever seen anything swell up so big so fast. Hey, Jimmy. Don't take that personally, old man.
2: Hey, uh, I can get back to the store, so let's get cracking. Uh, what do you want? Something like, uh, a little slower. It's too fast. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, that's whoa, no, whoa. That's too fast. Yeah, way yeah. too fast. Slow down. Slow down. Good. Yeah. This is not a polka. This is rock and roll. Perfect, man. Very good. Took Chad a week to learn that. Chad? Who's Chad? Just one song, right? Mm-hmm. That's right. Wonderful. I gotta go. That's it. Guy Patterson. That's it, The Wonders. And then you know how like the Beatles, the Beatles they use an E A as the Beatles? Well, we can use an O and E like
1: The
0: Wonders.
2: You're talking gibberish. No, look. The Wonders. Lenny. Yeah, it looks like the O'Neaters. No, the, the Wonders. Got it. Looks like the O'Neaters.
0: One other thing that I think this movie does really well in the extended edition, mm-hmm. uh, and I guess it starts with maybe a, a, a conversation about the theatrical cut, which is that it is this very, you know, like we said, kind of candy-coated, sort of su- sugar rush, pop, effervescent type of movie, but it doesn't really show, like, that there is, you know, to a certain extent, what you sort of said which is that these like rockers or these you know like kind of pop musicians of this era were something that almost felt kind of countercultural. they don't really ever touch on that everything feels very palatable everything feels very warm in the theatrical version but there is an awesome moment that is in the extended cut when they are doing their kind of like steady gig at uh villa pianos by the airport yeah uh which we see in in the theatrical cut a little bit uh as a, a fun side note they have like one just like rabid fan of the of the band who always <laughs> yeah. shows up the actor escapes me but he's immediately recognizable yeah like this he's one of, of those
1: a... he's one of those guys he's in so many things
0: and uh, you know as a uh you know s- producer and host of a small podcast i can tell you that having like <laughs> one or two like socially maladjusted kind of like loud weird fans who like know everything about your lore <laughs> Uh, very real I'm not gonna name any names you guys are all wonderful we love you for listening to the show um but they, they absolutely exist I promise and I'm like oh this this is I, I know this level of of success at least here where like you've got one one person who like knows a lot about what you're doing and it's it's kind of an interesting sensation but uh you know during these scenes we we see they're kind of you know like they're getting big they're getting popular they're making money at for mm. the for the restaurant and then there's uh another time when they're when they're playing at the sort of residency where somebody jacks a uh a fire extinguisher (laughs) off the wall and starts spraying it on people and then it turns into this brawl and overnight it becomes like this news piece in you know like the Erie herald or whatever the (laughs) Erie star whatever the the local paper is where it's like riot breaks out as a result of rockers (laughs) at villa pianos and it's, it's one of those things that, you know, like, again, is a kind of a callback to the era too, you know, where, you know, when people get like a little bit rowdy and out of hand at like a rock show, all of a sudden, it, you know, it's painted as a riot. But it is a, a moment that absent in the theatrical cut, it, it just adds so much richness and texture to it too, where for a brief moment, all of a sudden, like they're provocateurs. They're not just yeah. like these sweet boys that everyone loves, like they're, they're rock and roll stars.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's... There's a couple of things I love about that scene, which is the manager of Villa Piano's calling the cops and screaming, <laughs> "I got a riot going on here. Get the cops down here." Yeah. But I also love the touch that Jimmy packs up and runs away immediately and takes Fay while the other <laughs> guys are providing music for the brawl happening and they just keep playing. Yeah. And I don't that to me is another like very it's like a through line that kind of always feels somewhat present, but never fully touched upon, especially in the theatrical one, that it's kind of like they're a band and Jimmy just happens to be the guy writing the songs and leading them. Yeah, because I think about it's like an interesting moment in my mind where when we get to the big joyous celebratory scene of the song playing on the radio, Faye runs in the bass player runs in and then Lenny and Jimmy are together and they run in
0: mm-hmm. and
1: while they're all together, like Jimmy just zeros in on Faye and like celebrates with her while the rest of them are all like running around the store. Yeah. And I know they like join in with them for like, the last shot where they're circling the radios, but there's something like the extended cut explores it more. I think the fact that Jimmy is maybe a bit of an outsider here. Uh, He definitely gets made fun of way more in the extended cut, which (laughs) is great because he's such a like dork for trying to figure out band names that have puns in them. Yes. (laughs) I wish I can't remember the scene in the extended one, but like someone says something and Lenny's like, oh, that'd be a good band name. Right. Like poking fun at him because there's clearly he feels disconnected from it. Uh, And I think especially because they quote unquote ruined his song by making it Mm -hmm. fast or something. Um, but you don't really get that in the theatrical cut as much, and you don't get as much of Guy and Faye interacting to where I do feel like, you know, slight criticism of the theatrical one. I feel like it maybe does feel like Guy and Faye getting together at the end feels maybe shoehorned in a little more. Absolutely. Um, because when have they interacted other than that? Like they when she has a cold on the plane, you know, like Mm -hmm. and then at the end, that's kind of their most meaningful interactions. And then throughout the extended one, he she's the first person he talks to. And suddenly it all clicks and kind of makes more narrative sense. They end up together. Um, but now I forgot the point. Oh, yeah, the riot. (laughs) Jimmy leaves. (laughs) Jimmy leaves and Jimmy was always going to run away from stuff. That's my I'm anti Jimmy. I there's something yeah. I've realized in my slightly older age and rewatching it. I don't like Jimmy. Uh We got to thank him for the songs. But as a guy who do you want to be in a band with? I don't want to be in a band with that guy. That guy doesn't understand being part of the playtone galaxy of stars. That's right. You got to play
0: ball, Jimmy. This is part <laughs> of it there's there's an incredible line late in the the film when they're all sitting around in like the you know like the the diner of the ambassador. Yeah. And and he says, you know, like he he's trying to push them to, you know, be more kind of resolute about writing the music and getting back in the recording studio and not doing the movie gigs and not doing the television gigs. And he says, "Well, I guess I'm I'm the only one oh, yeah. alone in my principles. And <laughs> yeah. uh Steve Zahn says, Oh, he's going off to write his next hit song, <laughs> Alone in My Principles. Um <laughs> uh, But you know, I, I think one of the things that the extended version does really well with Jimmy, like you said, like it, it has a little bit, not scorn for him, but I think what it does is paints him as a, a, a kind of interesting figure in that mm-hmm. he is principled he has what he perceives as like a a sort of artistic integrity yeah and all those things are you know merits at face value and and kind of in the abstract but he's also just kind of mediocre i think is the other thing like his sensibilities and his tastes are not with the times and not like Something that is marketable and, and populist, and I think that that's mm-hmm. like a thing that the the extended version shows really well is that you know he can have all of these perspectives, he can he can have these principles, uh, but they all are counterintuitive to success, and yeah. and they just don't work for what people are actually craving and looking for. While the rest of the band is just kind of along for the ride and enjoying the fact that they're you know, embracing fame and and getting recognition and getting to play music.
1: Yeah. I mean, to be very transparent on the podcast, I think that might be why I hate him so much because (laughs) I'm like, yeah, you know what? I would probably be the exact same way. I, you know, I, I realized everything that I could do differently currently with making music and I'm like, no, I'm not going to change that. I'm going to stick with it because of what I think it makes sense <laughs> to what I'm doing. And yeah. I'm like, it doesn't work. You got to change. It. And I'm and then I watch this. and I'm like, Jimmy, you idiot. You ha- can't be doing this. And now that I think about it, I'm like, oh, that's you're mad because you're doing the same thing. You just don't have you just don't have Tom Hanks giving you a hard time off right. to the side. We we hate in others. <laughs> yeah. We
0: hate in others what we see in ourselves. Ryan is is the thing. Um, yeah, <laughs> but you know, like I I think that you know to an extent this is part of that ethos of you know no bad guys in the movie. You know Jimmy yeah. is not somebody who is like you know innately evil or anything or doing anything to like deliberately undercut the band. He's just kind of a guy who was already sort of a loner and has like a, a perspective of you know kind of self integrity first and doesn't get all of the the politics of it. doesn't get all the other stuff that comes along with the gig. Yeah. I, I want to talk about the scene that you already mentioned. It is the best scene in the movie and one that gets talked about uh, endlessly because of how good it is, I will say. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is the moment where they all hear their song on the radio for the very yes. first time. Uh, just, you know, kind of homing in on it for a moment. Uh, first of all, the extended cut does a great job of filling in a slight gap where it explains the reason why in that scene, when it starts, all of them randomly have these little pocket radios on them that they're yes. listening to. Yes. Which we don't get in the theatrical cut. We just are meant to assume that they is listening to a radio. uh, guy is listening to a radio while he's working the bass player is listening to it while he's getting fitted at like the, uh, the army and Navy outlet for his uniform. Uh, they just randomly have them. But in the extended cut, we see that guy purchases a bunch of these pocket radios after they've signed a contract with Chris Ellis's character. Yeah. Uh, so that they can scan and listen to the radio every hour of the day, Mm -hmm. waiting to hear if their, their song comes on the air. Um, so naturally it's, Faye, it's Liv Tyler's character first at a mailbox who hears it. You hear it over the radio. You know, some local boys, the O'Neaters yeah. or whatever, um, which is a great running gag, by the way. I know we haven't talked about it, but Wonders, O'Neaters.
1: It's, like, a, it, I, it's a, one of my favorite things at Villa Pianos is... The guy handing Steve's on the money, he goes, "There's a lot of money in you own eaters. and he goes, "It's the Onetters."
0: <laughs> yes, uh, it's. Uh, I mean, every time they do it, you know, like even the the host at the um, the talent show, where yeah. he calls them the oneders and then they correct him and say it's the Wonders, and then at the end, they see you know, the yeah. the the meter goes into, what is it, wild or whatever? Something um, like that, yeah. And and he says, the meters are wild. <laughs> he gets very, very excited, Um, forgets that he's been corrected on it already. But by any means, you know, Faye hears this on the radio. We see that she, like, runs past screaming, you know, to, mm-hmm. to Ethan Embry's character. They're running down the street in this great kind of, like, you know, tr- tracking shot that feels like it's from the back of a moving car. It's bumpy yeah. and kind of riotous. And, you know, you were talking already about some of those moments in the, like, dressing rooms and, you know, like, backstage mm-hmm. where there's a little bit more of that kind of handheld action. It feels a little bit more, like, verite. Not necessarily documentary style, like you said. Right. But, but it has, like, a kind of, like, energy and life to it. And those scenes or those shots really, really sing in this portion here where we yeah. get a lot of those kind of, like, whip pans from Guy, like, selling a, <laughs> a yeah. like, washing machine. He's like... It comes in blue, comes in standard white, <laughs> yeah. avocado, you yeah. know? Um, and then just starts screaming his head off. We get these other whip pans and like, you know, rack focuses from the sister in the store to Lenny and um, Jimmy, like pulling up and barely even stopping the car when they run out and, you know, come into the store. Uh, and it's just like it's such a joyous moment. It's just like. I don't know. It, it, you you can't help but be just like sort of enamored with it and, and you just kind of swoon when you see it.
1: Yeah, it's I mean, I don't know that that scene makes the rounds on Twitter so often and every time the caption is the same, which is that it's just like the most joyous thing on film and it's kind of one of those things where like you want to come up with another way to say that, but You don't really need to those everybody who says it like that is exactly right. It just feels it makes you feel happy to see that happen. Mm -hmm. Like there's just something about it. That's it's what I think it might be one of my favorite scenes in like any movie. It's so there's so much happening. I love the touch of Liv Tyler. Forgetting to put the mail in the mailbox and then running back (laughs) for a second to put the mail in the mailbox. Yeah, Uh, there's also I mean, it's one of my favorite things. I think maybe in the whole movie it's in both cuts, but it's when they're all there and Steve Zahn goes over to guy's sister and she just kind of looks at him yes. and he grabs the cardboard cutout and like kisses the cardboard cutout and stops yeah. for a second, almost like he realizes what he does. And it's just like, yeah. And then runs back over carrying the cardboard cutout is like, <laughs> while his, while guy's dad is like, that's an expensive display. Put that down. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, I, It's like, I don't know. It's something that, it's so stupid. And I wonder if that was even written. I wonder if that, that feels like an improvised moment. But I could also see that being written in. Like the way, the way the rest of it's written, I could see that 100% being planned. But it's just so, I don't know. That, it's so joyous. And in a way, it kind of makes me sad. Because it's like, well, this is only from a personal perspective. But like now that I can put something out on the Internet, I can just go press play on whenever I want and be like, hey, yeah. there it is on the Internet. There's not this <laughs> process of like you make a record and you wait for it to come out from somewhere else. Yeah, And it's like there's something I don't know. It's an it's an indescribable feeling. Because I feel like people, you just aren't going to get that now. And it's mm-hmm. like, I don't know, the the act of them turning on every radio in the store to the song no one has ever looked happier in a movie and it's so great to watch it every single time every time that makes rounds online i watch that like five times in a row it's just perfect
0: yeah i'll stop and watch it whenever it comes around it's um you're right i mean it just again is like one of those things that's you know nostalgic for kind of a bygone era where there was that uncertainty around like your success there was like a less immediacy All of a sudden, mm-hmm. you know, you you have to just kind of sit and wait and hope that you don't miss it. And I, I mean, you know, we're, you know, children of the you know late 80s, early 90s. And, and even then, you know, like pre-internet, there was a little bit of this, you know, like there was a yeah. little bit less of that immediacy of things we get excited about and anticipate releases. You do listen to the radio and wait for your song to come on and, you know, tape it on a cassette or something like that. And yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's something that now in 2023, you, you have such a reverence for and it it doesn't feel like a, you know, like, like there's been any sort of like, you know, tinge to that kind of nostalgia and that sense of like wonder, like this is one of those kind of pure hits where you don't have to think about you know anything too terrible like that's just adjacent to the fact that these kids are excited (laughs) about their song playing on the radio it feels like there's kind of an innocence to it that's really really profound and you know you mentioned steve zahn kissing the cardboard cutout we might just want to take a minute and talk about steve zahn just broadly in this yes he is this film's he, he is this film's secret weapon yeah um he is fucking hilarious in every scene uh, I understand from what I read that he was at the very first table read of the script alongside he, Ethan Hawke. Cause they like were buddies. Yeah. Um, and was the very first person cast in the yes. band.
1: Yeah. He was the first person that they decided to be in it, which is yeah. makes sense. You know, you could only, how could anyone else read for that and be like, yeah, he's as good as Steve's on.
0: It's like everything he says in it is hilarious to me. I, I, there are moments in this that I'll just like quote endlessly. And they're all Steve's on quotes. Like anytime he says, captain Geach and the shrimp shack shooters, (laughs) I lose my mind. Um, and then the, the scene where they're, you know, on the air with, uh, with, uh, Ron Howard's brother. Yeah. 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 (laughs) And, uh, with Clint Howard, uh, and, guy says something like, Yeah, we we were pretty wild back in Erie, PA. <laughs> yeah. and One night we Zahn... stayed up past midnight. <laughs> <laughs> and he doesn't finish the story, you know, it's clear that he's like kinda of playing around and joking, but he's like, you know, talking about, you know, them staying up past midnight and giggling so hard he can't finish the story. And there's just something so And Tom Hanks giving him that
1: it. death stare for a saint. Oh, wow. It's so good. <laughs> One of my favorites is um in the theatrical cut, it ends on this, but when he is flirting with the receptionist at Playtone records. And he says <laughs> yes. something like how long have you worked here? And she says, how long have you worn such tight pants or something? And he yes. gives this like kind of like great kind of classic comedic reaction. Just like, <laughs> like trying to catch his breath. <laughs> and I love that it ends there on the theatrical cut. I also love in the extended one that they just keep going back and forth to the point where he's like, All right, I'm going to go so I don't blow it. Like, I'll see. you.
0: (laughs) It's so good. And I think he even says, too, he's like, if that was a pickup line, we are a match made in heaven. (laughs) Yeah, God bless. Like, I cannot believe this is happening to me right now.
1: Yeah, he is. is He's not only the key to the movie, but I genuinely believe it is still his best performance. Mm -hmm. I think it is like pound for pound. It's just like, yeah, I mean. It has to be said, which we kind of already did, but they just picked the exact right people to portray these characters who, you know, because it's, if it's going to be a movie with no bad guys, they also all have to be believably good. And like, none of them can come off as annoying. And I feel like there's a thing now where people are complaining about things being too, like, nice. Yeah. And I feel like it with other actors, it would have come off like that. It is funny reading that oral history on how long it took to cast guy and that Mm -hmm. he didn't want to cast Tom Everett Scott. because he looks too much like young me. (laughs) And
0: at the point where I think he's
1: right, he's right. He looks so much like a young him. But I think it's funny that I I think in that oral history is Rita Wilson, who was like, who cares? Like, he's obviously the right person for this. It is hard to imagine anyone else in any of those roles, you yeah. know. Even, even the small roles. It's like everyone is cast perfectly. Even, as I meant, Saul Siler is Alex Rocco. A little bit of Nick Miller trivia is: I did not see The Godfather until two years ago.
0: Oh my goodness! So, okay, so you didn't so know anything about Mo Green before? In then.
1: my mind, Alex Rocco was not Mo Green. He was Saul Siler. <laughs> yeah, he was a man. Who is an actor most people know the names of. And I am have always been like the guy who's in that thing you do for two minutes. People know that. Guy. <laughs> <laughs> and then I finally watched The Godfather. Like, oh, OK, I get it. Like, I now, I, now. now I understand. <laughs> but everyone, even down to him, like, these are all just even Clint Howard is like great in that role. And yeah. um it should be said also about that extent, the extended version of that scene in the theatrical cut. He comes off as someone who is not paying attention and listening mm-hmm. to them. Uh, he come. you remember in Wayne's world too, when they go to plug Wayne stock on the radio, yes. and Harry Shearer is there and he's constantly switching out the tapes and just going like, Oh yeah. Interesting. And they're just like saying insane things to see if he catch, like they catch him. Right. That, I feel like, is what Clint Howard comes off as in the theatrical cut.
2: Mm-hmm. And you
1: watch the extended cut, and he's, like, actually engaged, especially with Guy talking about Del Paxton. Yep. theatrical one, there's this weird pause that I always felt like he's bullshitting him. He doesn't know who Del Paxton is. But in that extended one, he, like, is right on it. He's like, oh, yeah, of course. And that's also, I think, when you learn it's a jazz station. I don't think you learn that in the theatrical cut. I don't think it's a thing that's included, which is weird in its own right that they put like a teen pop sensation band on a jazz radio station to do an interview.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. They're hitting everybody, right? They've got uh, Paul Feig in there too, doing one of his bits, which I think is in the the theatrical version as well. Yeah. But uh, I mean, you bring up an interesting point with the Clint Howard character here. Uh, and, and I know we're, we're jumping ahead a little bit, but I would say, you know, for the most part, the back like third of this movie remains pretty intact in the theatrical and the extended version. There's a few minor moments yeah. here and there, um, one of which actually is that, you know, when uh, Liv Tyler dumps Jimmy, dumps Jonathan Shack, uh, it's mm-hmm. way more brutal in the extended version. You know, it she is. doesn't she doesn't leave the room on that like. um I'm, I'm sorry, I, I kissed you with my eyes closed. Or yeah, whatever. yeah, yeah. She speaks with the receptionist with, from Playtone, who's yeah, yeah, with Kitty, who's there, and there's like kind of a joke where she's like, "You tell him, honey," and she's like, "Sorry, who are you?" <laughs> yeah, who are you?
1: Um,
0: but then she, you know, she tells Kitty, she's like, "Well, you you keep an eye on Jimmy and watch him, you know, on his on slow his... descent to <sighs> the loveless life that he deserves," and you're like, "Holy shit!" <laughs>
2: it's,
1: it, yeah, it's like such a. That's such a good fucking line. Yeah. And then you're also like, okay, I understand why this doesn't fit in the theatrical one. But mm-hmm. God, imagine if that made it. Cause I also like for the that theatrical cut ending on the shame on me for kissing with my eyes so tight. Great line to end on. It,
2: mm-hmm.
1: it, it's good if it ended there. But it's like Lenny flirting with Kitty earlier. Like it works where it ends in the theatrical one. But adding that extra... 30 seconds on it bothers me that so much good writing got cut out of the theatrical version yeah like <laughs> just aside from does it add character development or anything there are just so many good lines that don't make it and you're like this really could have it really could have changed a lot of people's perception of it i think like yeah it's great i don't know i i think that's such a good scene
0: yeah it's a i mean it's Heartrending, and you know I bring up the Clint Howard moment because at the end here I think that the movie does something really smart in the extended version with the ending which is that Mm -hmm. it doesn't let Guy have it all and you know in the theatrical cut at the end there is the moment where he like comes back after you know playing the drums when you know kind of jamming with Dell in the studio for a little bit and he's carrying a box full of tapes and you assume yes. that maybe it's like the sessions that they had just recorded or something like that but uh he then he goes and talks to live tyler's character in the diner and there's like a, a kind of a covered shot from afar and there's an adr moment where mm-hmm. uh where tom everett scott you can hear him say you know like kind of without his mouth moving say something like oh Dell says i i can make it as a drummer here so i'm gonna stay well, in the extended version, we find out that that is not what happens, that he jams a little bit, gets tight with Dell, starts just kind of like shooting the shit with them and then calls Clint Howard's character and tells him like, hey, I, you'll, you're the only person who would appreciate this. But I was just in the studio with Dell Paxton and Clint Howard's like, if you can get him and these other jazz guys that he hangs out with, like if you can interview them and get it on tape send it to me and I'll pay you for it. Like you can have a gig here in town. Like I I will hire you on as like a DJ for like the the evening slot. Yeah. Which by the way, he says that it's going to be six to midnight, seven days a week, which sounds like a miserable schedule. (laughs) Um, But you take what you can get, I guess.
1: Well, maybe in the early sixties, there wasn't as much to do. So it's like, I might as well, might as well be working at the radio station every day.
0: Yeah, six hours he can have like a uh, a play Misty for me situation happen at some point, you know, meet <laughs> yeah, some. That's like... the sequel. That's yeah. the sequel. <laughs> uh, so in this extended version, you know, those those uh, reels that he's carrying are his interview. They're not yeah. like his se- session recordings. And at the end, you know, he has to sort of make a decision and he kind of does. He, he gets a little bit of it. But at the end, you realize like he doesn't get to realize his dream of being a drummer. Yeah, he's he's a DJ and he's and he's proximate to music, which he loves, but he tells live at the end like I have an opportunity to like talk about jazz and listen to jazz and like work at a radio station and I'm going to do it like that. That is fulfilling to me. And I just think it adds a little bit more of that kind of like undercurrent that's so prevalent in the extended version that you're talking about, which is like there's like not not a bitterness or cynicism, but there's a little bit more authenticity and a little bit more of just kind of that like character development that makes it all feel like real and gives everyone like opportunities to like experience a little bit of deflation over the course of the, the movie.
1: Sure. And I think also, I mean, the way I read it, watching the extended one is I don't even see him becoming a DJ and interviewing those guys as like him not reaching his dreams because I feel like earlier in the extended one, it spends so much time before he joins the band that you do kind of get this idea that he's okay with music being more of a hobby.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: He can go in the basement of the shop after clothes and drum along to records. You know, he tells them when they try to get him to play in the band. I mean, he says it in the theatrical one too, I guess, but like it's been a long time since he played with a group could be fun to do. Um, but like his whole interest when they go out to Hollywood is he meets Del Paxton at a bar and that changes like that. May, he's having a good time otherwise, but like that, I feel like shifts something within like, yeah, I, to me, I feel like that's kind of always what he did want to do, which was like be maybe more on the sidelines um, and not be a musician. Mm-hmm. But being a musician is fun. So you're going to take the chance if you can. Yeah, the drumming part doesn't make sense. It doesn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's not a bad drummer. But like. why? Del Paxton told him he could make it as a session. Drummer. Like that's an insane. That is more. <laughs> ab- that's more absurd than what happens, which is already kind of like an absurd thing to yeah. w- work out. <laughs> but it's like, I don't. It feels more true. It also fits in better, I think, with. The credits, you know, saying he and Faye got married and they start a jazz conservatory or something.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: To me, the fact that he's interviewing jazz musicians and like have hosting a show week, like nightly, seven days a week, that sounds more like somebody who would start a conservatory than a working musician. You know, I think... It all just makes more sense. It is a shame that it got cut to what it was. Because I just think the whole arc makes more sense. Uh, and I think it's happier. I, I kind of think it's a little bit happier.
0: Yeah. And, you know, when I say that, you know, Guy doesn't realize his dream, I think what I mean is that, like, on paper, you know, this idea that he and, and maybe the band have of, like, you know, the, this stardom. but But it does, I think, posit in the extended edition that, like, what he ultimately does and what maybe a lot of them do is, like, more authentic. And right keeps keeps music more pure where he gets to embrace it, you know, and and talk about in a a music form that isn't, you know, as popular with, you know, like wide audiences that it it takes the business out of it Mm -hmm. and brings it back to a level where he can find like appreciation and love in that role. And like with another person.
1: Yeah. It keeps him from becoming a Jimmy
2: Mm
0: -hmm. who,
1: is going to get flustered and quit during a recording session uh i don't know you get everything kind of wrapped up neatly but in a more believable like less absurd way i also think uh, this is something we didn't touch on at all he t- calls that drum piece i am spartacus yeah and the guy laughs the thing the extended edition does well is explain his fixation with saying that line because yes. That is not, there's no reason for it in the theatrical <laughs> one. It makes no sense other right. than it is like a reference to something. Right. The and first t- the time point- he
0: says it, the first time he says it is uh, when they hear their song on the radio. I think yes. in the theatrical version, he throws his hands up and says, I am Spartacus. And he screams
1: it. Yeah. And in both cuts, when they're on the TV show, right before they start, Lenny goes, how did we get here? And he says, I led you here because I am Spartacus. And Lenny's reaction is so funny. Because it's clearly where he's like, what the fuck are you talking about? Where he just kind of looks at him and <laughs> raises his eyebrows and turns away. And it's like, it does not make sense in the theatrical one. And yeah. then you watch the extended one. And that is what he's watching with, I, on, with Tina in his apartment. Mm-hmm. And she's asking him to do the impression again because she likes it. Like, it. It adds so much. Just that 15 seconds of seeing it on the TV and her like asking for him to say it it explains so much and it just it, like it makes it was one thing that has never made sense to me when i only had seen the theatrical one i was like mm-hmm. why does he keep doing the spartacus thing it doesn't make sense tina doesn't like it on the phone lenny doesn't understand it when he says it to him but then it's like oh okay because at one point it was you know tied to something nice and is obviously he's going to keep doing that but yeah also i think this is something my dad my dad tells me this all the time when if this movie comes up (laughs) it's like his favorite bit of trivia is that apparently the piece of music that is i am spartacus is tom hanks wrote it and my my dad talks about that every time that we talk about this movie every time it gets mentioned
0: (laughs) Well, your dad will be proud that you brought it up here with me today and made it I into the episode. I can't wait to tell him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, Tom uh, also is responsible for writing the piece of music that opens the film. Yeah,
1: yeah. The I can't remember what they're on the soundtrack, but yeah. Yeah, that, it's uh,
0: the Norm Wooster Singers is what, what it's, it, it is. <laughs> yeah. Um, but then I guess Tom also submitted his own version of that thing you do uh yeah. to for, to be considered as well i'm glad we got the one we did but it you know just knowing that he is a musician himself i think adds a lot of uh color and richness to the the film and knowing that he yeah. got this tune in there at the end is you know a little bit of a cool pretty cool yeah. you know Faye's not feeling very good
2: I want to know when we're going to get into a recording studio. Well,
1: now, first things first, fellas. <clears throat> you have to
2: go off and pay homage to Mr. Saul Siler. He's the founder and chairman of Playtone Records. Hey, what hotel are we staying at? Mm. It's the place that Lucy and Ricky stayed when they came out with Fred Nethel. And, and then we go into the studio. Exactly. Because the point of all this just to make more records. What would you fellas think about making an appearance in a major motion picture? Whoa, what movie? Then, something very grand on the horizon, if I have worked the phones correctly, the Hollywood Television Showcase. Hmm?
0: We are gonna be on TV. Man, after that sometime, Jimmy, Discmaster Studios on Sunset, you will cut another record, all right? Uh Any other questions? Don't ask, because I'm so sick of talking to you all. What is wrong with Faye? Excuse me.
2: Oh, well, she's got a fever. Okay. Give her two white ones and one blue one. She'll sleep like a baby. Oh, Joan, our Miss Joan. Yes? How long are we going to be on the ground at Stapleton? Oh, it shouldn't be more than an hour. All right, will you make sure that I'm not disturbed until then? Sure. Thank you.
0: Lenny, give me that paper. Give me the paper.
2: Lenny, why don't you go and see if you can visit the cockpit? Tell him it's your birthday. Go, go, go.
0: At the end here too, I, I was maybe the first time I, I noted it because the movie is so full of all of these like great pop tunes. Uh, it's easy to forget that there's also like a score to many portions of the film. Yeah, and it's done by uh, the great Howard Shore, who mm-hmm. you know, o- Oscar winner himself. Um, the song that they play at the end in the diner. Uh, is I I assume his song because it's just sort of like a little like piano overture that, you know, kind of like builds and like sweep and the strings come in at the moment that they kiss after they run out of the diner together. But it's so good. Uh, And it's it's so evocative in that moment and the extended Mm -hmm. edition of that diner scene when they're just talking and the music is playing below them, like I get genuinely choked up watching it in the extended version. It's just like such a pure moment of like romance right before it's initiated like in full Mm -hmm. um and and i cannot find the recording just like raw anywhere (laughs) of the score to this. i mean
1: it would be great mondo if it's not too late add a second disc to that vinyl let's get the score on there let's not let's not only stick with the pop songs because i i don't think about that either even though like it's better than it needs to be it's a movie (laughs) packed with original songs and the score also happens to be really good that doesn't need to be the case at all it could coast only on the pop songs and you're right I mean it adds so much to that last scene that scene in the diner is so good Um, just the whole ending in both cases obviously it's, it's more fulfilling in the extended one but the whole exchange between Guy and Faye at the end is just like I mean, I think I said it earlier me he was off mic. I don't know. There is something very old Hollywood about it in a mm-hmm. sense. And that scene specifically really plays like kind of like an old classic Hollywood romance scene where they're not allowed to show something. So it is yep. all like dialogue and all dialogue that works too. like there's not mm-hmm. a clunker of a line in there anywhere. It all sounds like a conversation like. Like a real conversation, and it just—I don't know—it does—it does get me emotional. It's a very heartwarming ending, uh, yeah. And on either cut,
0: yeah, it's a really sweet scene, and you know, uh, that's where I think maybe some of the most like pure filmmaking happens mm-hmm. in the movie too. It's like the first time that I—I I genuinely feel the director's hand in there because so much of this is, you know, like you can admire the cinematography and the sound and there's like the the energy of it, but it's one of those moments where I was like. Someone is making a movie and they are yeah. doing a very good job at it right here in this sequence. <laughs> yeah. uh, in fact, there are, you know, I heard about this from a friend of the show and former guest Jason Miller that there is a small contingent that believe that Demi Ghost directed this movie rather than Hanks. And I don't know if that's the case, but this scene, if you had showed me just like the ending of this in the extended cut by itself, yeah. standalone, this is the moment where I would maybe say, okay, I take your point. Like I, I could <laughs> yeah. see that ma- like, because it does feel very like classic Demi in that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, One of the other scenes that feels that way is one that I, th- I think we mentioned uh, before we started recording, uh, which also reveals some interesting character moments as well, which is the introduction of Tom Hanks's partner played by mm-hmm. Howie Long. Yes. It's right after the scene with Del Paxson at the bar where guy is, mm-hmm obscenely drunk. Yeah. Uh Rita Wilson drives him home and you get the only moment in the movie where uh Rita and Tom interact. Yep. Uh which is very sweet. Everyone seems to know who she is. Like she is apparently like, you know, this uh like kind of bloodthirsty cougar, like cocktail waitress <laughs> who like <laughs> is sort of notorious with uh Oba Baba Tunde's character Lamar, another very yeah. charming character who we haven't talked much about. And even with with Hanks's Mr. White. Uh, this scene also shows a very impatient Howie Long leaning against like a red Corvette right out front of the Ambassador Hotel. Yep. And you realize that he's waiting for Hanks because they're trying to get somewhere. Yeah, uh, And that, you know, he's like kind of eyeballing him out of the corner of his, his uh, periphery while he's trying to, you know, talk to Guy while he's drunk and just saying like, okay i'll be there in a minute like you know like we'll be fashionably late just chill yeah, out yeah, yeah. i'm coming um and it's it's a nice scene you know and and we get a sense of tom hanks is like uh his character as like a real person outside of just like being this kind of vicious or more just sort of like pragmatic kind of curt um yeah producer uh manager rather but it's also very beautiful to look at and i think we mentioned you know like it's the only time we see the hotel at night with the kind of like halogen lamps, like sort of breathing outside and the open stretch of concrete that paves it and the colors of it and this red Corvette under the lights. And it feels very like that, that scene to me feels very Altman that feels very like vintage Americana, like, uh, like new Hollywood kind of stuff. Yes.
1: Yeah. That is one where I know earlier I said, there's no like, Real specific glow to how this movie looks. But that one does have a very distinct look, in that, like, it looks different from the rest of the movie. And it might just be because we're at a location we don't see again. Mm -hmm. But there's something remarkable about that scene. I also, part of what I love about learning about Mr. White and Lloyd, Howie Long, um, is like they do so many good. References to the Beatles throughout the movie,
2: mm-hmm. like
1: their name checked a few times, obviously, especially in the extended one. But like parallel wise, like it's very clear at this point. This is the stand in for Brian Epstein, you know, yes. like it was,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know, because he was I don't think it came out that he was gay till after he died. But like, you know, that was I think it was probably important to Tom Hanks to show that on the screen if mm-hmm. he was going to. Uses this as his tribute to the era. Um, that and like the. You know, the Chiron on the screen on the TV show, the careful girls he's engaged, like yeah. mirroring the John Lennon. He's married thing, right? It's Just like it's these little touches that. If somebody handled them poorly, you would be like it's shoehorning it in, but because Of like Tom Hanks, I don't know craftsmanship. I guess is the right word. These all are like very clearly loving details in Mm -hmm. ways that are supposed to add to not just the story, but to show like, yeah, this is important to me. This is like a big thing. Um, And I don't. I've always. I think I've actually tried to sell people on the scene, on watching the movie based on the scene that Howie Long is in one and isn't a scene. Yeah, like you like Howie Long on you know NFL, right? <laughs> Guess what? He's in a movie. Like you want to see him for thirty seconds in a movie next to Tom <laughs> Hanks. That that doesn't usually work as a selling point, but
0: <laughs> yeah. But you know, if if there's any big you know Howie heads out there, uh, <laughs> he's in this extended cut. So if, if you haven't seen it, you know, hunt it down. Yeah, uh, but but it is in those moments like that. You know, like I've I've read a handful of reviews of this extended cut that call it unnecessary call it like too meandering or you know Mm -hmm. that like it sucks all the energy and momentum out of like what is like a really good like well-paced movie but i don't mind it and i think that like movie lovers like you and i and hopefully like people listening to this show see it as like an opportunity to just like spend more time with like the atmosphere you know it's not necessarily a hangout movie but it does just get to take its time a little more and i think like as i become a, a you know more of a movie lover and cinephile over the years, length bothers me less like Mm -hmm. uh, outright, like pacing and structure bother me less. And it's more about like the images and the like evocation of mood and tone on screen that I'm seeing. And uh, I I can't help but like recommend it and say, it's actually significantly better. Like even if it does feel, you know, kind of aimless in parts, like it's just fun to spend time in.
1: Yeah. I mean, I've, yeah, I remember the first time I read reviews saying that the extended cut was worse. And I was like, this that is the most insane opinion I've ever heard. Like <laughs> it it doesn't make sense to me that you would th- like I get it. It does make sense, but in my mind I'm like, you can't say that this is worse because it's longer. This is we get to see more of what's happening. It should meander a little bit. The like the problem with the theatrical cut is that It's over and done with in a second, you know, like there's, I don't know. It's hard to imagine watching a movie you think is good. And then seeing the extended cut where you get to learn more about the characters and being like, no, this wasn't good. This was unnecessary. Like, how is that (laughs) unnecessary? you liked spending time with them before it adds in my mind? It adds just the right amount of backstory to kind Mm -hmm. of everything. I like think I read someone say it on Letterboxd, who I generally like what they say about movies, and I was like, you don't know what you're talking. I think I I might have unfollowed them. I, it's possible I got... <laughs> I might have got real petty with this, because I was very defensive of this movie.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, you know, I, I mean, you're so right. It's like it's not a bad thing to get to spend more time with these characters and to just like kind of live in it if you've got the time for it. Right. And and yeah. if you actually enjoy the movie, it, it just fleshes things out more. It gives you more space to kind of revel in that. Like we said, it, it enhances some story moments and, and character things. And I think it just gives you a, a greater sense too, of maybe what like Hanks was going for overall in this, in this film, yes. which is, uh, you know not necessarily the like sugar coated like milkshakes and you know fountain mm-hmm. sodas version of of this that we get which is still totally fun it's still like yeah. you know it's perfectly serviceable it's a blast uh but it as you mentioned at the beginning like it it feels slight and uh, i watch it and i'm like I, as i grow with it i'm like this is just okay it, yeah. it, it's nice it's fun and then it's it's fleeting and then when i watched this one you know this week in preparation i was like this is taking on dimensions that make this feel i mean it it, it honestly feels like hank's swinging for like a, a good like americana like epic a little bit yes and you know whether he like totally succeeds i think is debatable i, I still think you know like his perspective and maybe his you know uh him being a first-time director imbues this with a, a sense that you know it could be more and more like deft hands yeah but it it's something that at least like i admire more in the attempt when i see yeah. the the kind of broadness and the scope of it
1: yeah it is i mean if you actually had demi ghost direct this whole thing it would be a whole other movie and whatever whatever shortcomings there even are with the extended cut probably wouldn't be there like it would mm-hmm. be a whole other thing it's hard to think about it like that cuz there is kind of this version of like it's so it's clearly so personal to Tom Hanks that this had to get made yeah. that i actually don't think in other hands it could have been better i sort of think you need somebody that tied to it that connected to it to be as good as it is um in either cut maybe somebody could have done a flashier shorter cut but i think in the extended one that has to be Hanks, because yeah. this was like a passion project. And it honestly, it makes me wonder, almost, is there <laughs> a long version of Larry Crown that's good? <laughs>
0: Release the Tom lo- Hanks cut.
1: Let me see the director's cut of Larry Crown, because what if it's a masterpiece? <laughs> I I realize a lot of the movie has to change for that to be the case. But what if it's a masterpiece? What if you watched a three-hour version of Larry Crown and you were like, this was the most important piece of cinema from the 2010s? Yeah. It's possible.
0: We don't know. We may never know.
1: Tom, if you're listening, is there, please ignore what I said about the theatrical cut of Larry Crown and let me know, is there an extended cut? Because <laughs> I got to say, you got... To your credit, you got a better performance from Rami Malek and Larry Crown than they got out of him for Bohemian Rhapsody.
0: I agree with you wholeheartedly on that. Speaking of Oscar winners, uh, mm. who may you know, or, or or people who didn't win Oscars for what is superior work, <laughs> we should talk about the fact that this film is Oscar nominated in one category, which is the one that it rightfully deserved: uh, best original song. Yes. It uh, it doesn't win. Schlesinger uh, goes home empty-handed. Instead, we get uh, whatever Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice song won for Evita that year. And is that what won? That's what won. And don't get me wrong. I love Evita. I think it's a good movie. I, I like the the musical quite a bit. It's it's great tunes in there. But I, if you had to ask me, which of them is more necessary and vital to? the heart and soul of the movie yeah. and which one I know all the words to and hum (laughs) along to myself more frequently. It's not a Vita. It's not, it's not that tune. Sorry to Andrew Lloyd Webber, but it's absolutely that thing you do.
1: No, no. You know what? I'm going to say it. No pleasantries to Andrew Lloyd Webber. He shouldn't have won. (laughs) I don't want him when he's a stage man. He shouldn't be winning Oscars. We give it to Adam Schlesinger. (laughs) If I had a time machine, that's what I would change. I'd go back in time and fix this Oscars race he and uh, maybe nominate this for best picture
0: there you go we, we if the extended cut gets it's gets re- released you know maybe maybe that's a best picture nominee that year mm-hmm. who knows uh but you're right andrew laid weber uh i will and, and no more pleasantries i will say you should have done a <laughs> macklemore and when you won said this actually belongs to kendrick lamar instead <laughs> i.e adam schlesinger um and <laughs> yes. it, it just just should have won the award and then been like, "This is actually this person's award instead." Um, yeah. that that would have been the right way to do it.
1: Yeah, Andrew, let me just say I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed in you. You should have you should have done this. If we can <laughs> if you're listening, Andrew Lloyd Weber, DM me on Twitter. We'll talk about this. So you think you could have handled it better.
0: <laughs> I'm just now imagining like a drunk Tom Hanks getting on stage and saying, you know, Andrew Lee Weber, I, I love you and I'm going to let you finish, but Adam Schlesinger wrote one of the best records of all time.
1: Then that would at least give, I mean, that's not that bad, but that would at least give a uh, uh, an interesting reason for people not liking Tom Hanks, because as it stands, it doesn't make sense. We mentioned them in passing, but obviously Captain Geach and the Shrimp Shack Shooters. Incredible. Uh, where would we be without them? Uh,
0: Weekend at Party Pier, by the way, directed by Jonathan by Demme.
1: I was just going to say, we never mentioned it. We've said his name a hundred times and never mentioned <laughs> that he shows up in it.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, it was a real delight when I bought this copy on DVD and watched it for the first time in years to remember that Brian Cranston played Gus Grissom (laughs) Yes, on the Hollywood TV Showcase. Um, There's also a great, in the extended one, there are chimps dressed as the Beatles that are going to be on the show.
0: Magnificent.
1: That are all also very clearly voiced by Tom Hanks. He's very clearly doing all the voices. Yes. But when Guy shows up to the auditorium late, it's one of my favorite jokes in it, where they're leaving the set with the chimps, and he stops and goes, does that one really play bass? And then keeps running back. <laughs> and I think we touched on how funny Steve on is in this. But everybody gets their share of like, whether it's laughing at them or laughing with them. Yep. Uh, we mentioned Jimmy's obsession with puns and band names. <laughs> uh, but I, d- I do always forget that when Giovanni Rubisi breaks his arm from hump- hopping over the parking meters... Yeah, That he, that Jimmy and Lenny are going back and forth about the herdsman, And he's saying, herd like herd, like from your ear. And <laughs> Lenny is clearly leading him on and being like, it doesn't make sense. What do you mean?
0: No, it's so, so good. There's so many great moments in it. I think, too, of the moment when they first meet Mr. White backstage and he's like, guy, see what the world looks like through these and throws in the shades. Yeah. And then he looks at the bass player and goes, and you. <laughs> Semper, Semper fi, fi. and then walks <laughs> yeah. out the door. Uh, so many great things like that. A couple other stray references or, or notes here. Uh, Oba Babatunde, as we mentioned, Lamar, the bellhop. Uh, yes. Like the incredible, super charming. I need somebody in my life to refer to me as young Squire every single time I, I'm I, in an environment.
1: On that note, I saw somebody, I think on Letterboxd, say something. Maybe as someone I follow. I don't remember. But say that because it ends with him looking at the camera. It's a, it's his movie. And I was Mm. like, you know what? I'm happy with, I'm, I would be okay. I don't think that makes sense, but I'm happy with it.
0: (laughs) Apparently that is because there was two different versions of the ending where they have like the, the postcards, like the, the photos that come up where that tells where everyone is and a fourth wall break version where Lamar says, Mm -hmm. I bet you want to know where they all are now. And then (laughs) says it. So the, the look at the camera at the end stays in for the cut. Yeah. Uh, they went with the other ending, but there is some version out there that tested, uh, that had Lamar being the person who, uh, became sort of our Greek chorus and, and wrapped everything up for us and told us the moral of the story.
1: I think the think the fourth wall break is perfect as it is. That would have been. Yeah. I think I would have thought it was horrible. If we had him say, <laughs> "But you're wondering what that happened."
0: Yeah. Well, with that, Nick Miller, we have uh, gone very long on that thing you do, Tom Hanks's extended cut. We've almost Uh, gone
1: as long as the extended cut.
0: That's true. We have. And I have a rule on this program that uh, as often as we can, we try to stay under the runtime of the feature. (laughs) Uh, So we're going to abide by that law today and uh, I think close it out there, but... You've been such a pleasure, Nick. Um, it's, it's so awesome to get to talk this movie with you. Thank you for being a fan. Thank you for bringing it and uh, for hanging out with me today.
1: Yeah, no, this was an honor. This was so great. Um, I am so glad this was the movie you reached out to me about because this is like it's one of my favorites and I'll take any excuse to rewatch it. So this was like perfect.
0: <laughs> well, your love for it uh, comes through. Absolutely. And you have certainly gotten me to love it even more than I think I already did. Um, so thank you for that. Nick, uh, where can people find you and your work around the internet?
1: Uh, Well, you can find me on Twitter. Some people know it as X. You can find me at Nick Miller Music. Find me on Instagram. Some people know it as a meta property. You can find me at Nick Miller Music. Same thing on Blue Sky, but you're not on. No one's on there, so it doesn't matter. I don't really (laughs) post on there. You're not going to find much. I'm at Bandcamp Nick hyphen maybe it's a dash i don't know miller.bandcamp.com if you find my twitter instagram the link is in there um you can find my music on spotify not all of it's on there it's all on bandcamp that's where you should go that's the uncut that's the extended version the director's cut (laughs) is on bandcamp but yeah those are the main places i guess i'm not really going to give anyone my email or my home address no one None of you need that. But if I know you, you can reach out and maybe I'll give it to you. Marshall Crenshaw, Tom Hanks, hit my DMs with the extended Larry Crown if you've got it.
0: <laughs> you heard it here, folks. Nick, we'll make sure to link to all of that so that people can find you. We'll keep your personal email address and your home address out of it. <laughs> uh, from our end of things, you can follow along with the show at hit Factory Pod. That's Twitter, Instagram, also on Blue Sky. Also not doing much there at the moment. Uh, We also have a Patreon for the show where you get bi-weekly bonus content for just $5 per month. Patreon.com slash HitFactoryPod. Tell your friends. We've got a Discord as well uh, that you get to join if you subscribe to the show. We're having good conversations in there all the time talking about that thing you do at the moment. And also Jonathan Demi and Robert Altman, as we always are, it feels like, in that Discord. Um, I will give a shout out to our overlords. Their names are Linda jesse k jared murray thank you all for your continued support and we will catch you all the next time see ya